When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to a new podcast, The Paddock and the Pavilion with Stephen Wallace. In each show, Stephen will interview someone connected to the world of horse racing or cricket. Hello and welcome to The Paddock and the Pavilion and to our listeners all around the world. We'd love to hear from you, so do get in contact with us either via Twitter or Facebook to let us know what you think of the show so far. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify or Stitcher. Rate and reverse and let your friends know. In today's show, we have gone back to sunny Barbados to catch up with former England test player and broadcaster Roland Butcher, who gave me his insights into England's test match summer of 2020. I hope you enjoy the show. Hello, Roland. Welcome back to the Paddock and the Pavilion. Yes, Stephen. It's a great pleasure to be back with you and um, looking forward um, to our little chat. That's great. Um, and you've agreed to review the Eng- England's Test Match Summer. Uh, we had six tests in seven weeks, um, some very exciting cricket and some very famous sort of events happened during those uh, seven weeks. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's been a, a very good summer after the year that the world has had uh, with this pandemic. to actually get some cricket played, even though without spectators, I think most people who are interested in cricket, not just in England or in the Caribbean, but I think throughout the world, uh, would have been very happy that cricket was actually back on air and they could actually watch the game. So for me, um, I, I thoroughly enjoyed both series against West Indies and Pakistan. Yeah, I think your point there about the, the whole world is very important because uh, I think we should, before we even start here, is thank both the West Indies players, uh, the West Indies board, the Pakistan players and the Pakistan board for actually agreeing to come over to play test cricket during a pandemic. Absolutely. And I think a lot of credit has to be given to the players as well, who um, could have made some excuse not to tour. But obviously the majority of players on both sides, um, both West Indies and Pakistan, thought that it was the right thing to do. I know West Indies had a couple of players that actually refused um, the invitation to go and play in England. Uh, it is even though very surprising that they're playing in the CPL, in the same bubble situation. That that takes a little bit of working out. But yes, the players really must be congratulated. It couldn't have been easy for them. A new situation to be in a biosecure environment where there's limited things for you to do. And obviously having to arrive at least a month before the start of the Test Series could not have made it that easy for the team so all credit to the players for what they were able to do and I suppose we, we, we should also thank the English cricket board for putting on the, the actual uh, test matches um, I saw that program on on Sky about uh, a Covid test match and uh, they had to uh, go through a lot of hoops to actually put on the show um, at such short notice yes I could imagine the political strings that they would have had to pull and, and hoops to, to jump through to 
actually get the government to sanction the the restarting of this particular these particular series when there was no other cricket being played. So obviously all credit to the ECB for their persistence and and hard work, really ensuring that cricket fans not just in England but around the world was able to see some Test cricket. Yeah, well let's let's get on with reviewing the uh, two series um, and take you back to July the 8th when the Test match began. Now, the West Indian team included seven Barbadians in their side. Uh, um, I'm sure several of those players you probably know yourself. Well, yes, obviously I know all the players because being a Barbadian selector, you know, I am part of parcel of selecting them for Barbados. So even though there were seven in the team, we actually had about, I think, 12, 13 on tour of the 25. So, yes, I I know them very well. So what did you think of, of the West Indies' chances at the start of the tour? Well, personally, I was not thinking like the majority of Caribbean people who felt that it was a done deal that West Indies would go to England and, and win easily. Uh, that was never in my thoughts as someone who obviously has been a professional cricketer for a long time, played in England. I think fully understands the international game. It was always for me going to be um, a very difficult task for West Indies to overturn something that hasn't happened for a long time by winning in a series in England. Um, they have won test matches, but they haven't won a series for a very long time. So I was always very cautious that in order for them to do that, they would have to play outstanding cricket. And to some degree, England would have to play below their normal standards. I felt England at home was always going to be a very strong team, different proposition at home, have players who are used to the conditions and the likes of Anderson and Broad, who have dominated world cricket in England um, over these years, was going to be extremely difficult. And especially with a, a fairly brittle um, batting lineup that we had on this tour, I was really under the impression that they would need a tremendous amount of luck to win the series. Well, they certainly started off well, winning the first test at Southampton, Southampton uh, where um, firstly Jason Holder showed... Um, uh, tremendous leadership uh, with the background as we went into that test match. He also took six wickets in the England's first innings when they were bowled out for 204. And combined with Shannon Gabriel's nine wickets and Jermaine Blackford's 95, they won by four wickets. Yeah, they had a, a terrific win. Very surprising that they'd actually come out and perform like that in the first game. And as you said, the players that performed, the captain held his hand up. Blackwood, who before the series, there was a question mark against, stood up in the second innings and took West Indies over the line, even though he got out before it happened. But I think the real thing that perhaps surprised everyone was the performance of Shannon Gabriel, who, as you know, is the very last person to be put into the 15. West Indies had picked 15, 14, and he had to prove his fitness. So his performance really was the surprise performance. And... By actually performing like that, I think it actually worked against the West Indies for the rest of the series because um, the thinking suddenly was that Shannon Gabriel had to play play all the time. And I think our management lost sight of the fact that Shannon Gabriel had undergone a very long and difficult ankle operation, long recuperation period, hadn't played any cricket at all. You know, this was the first time he would have played cricket since then. And really... He was someone that needed to be looked after. But as a result of winning that first test match and he performing so well, I think it clouded the judgment of 
management team, and he's he obviously was put into the the next test match, and we all know what happened after that. Yeah, well, actually, I was you know my next question I've written down here. You can't see on my bit of card here, but uh, the next question was should they have put, should they have rested Shannon Gabriel after the first test? Where you actually answered the question before I even answered it. Um, well, I mean, I, I, I still go further and say, I mean, that that was a certainty. I mean, I was doing some commentary here in the during the first uh, test match, and and I said very clearly, and I'm sure I'm not the only one who said it, very clearly that Shannon Gabriel should not play the second test match because these test matches, these three test matches, is a very short turnaround period of about three days. For someone who hasn't played cricket for a year, now playing in an environment which is totally different from any environment that he's played with, hasn't got the mileage um, in his body. Um, really, someone like him, you must look after carefully because there are two dangers, one of burning him out, and more importantly, the one of the injury reoccurring, which could threaten his career. So right in that first test match, I remarked on Gorilla Cricket that he really should not play, that they should rest him, really take the strategy of looking after my main weapon. Um, they won the first test match, leave him out and see what happens in that second test match. Then, you know, he would have had those five days, the three days in between that test match, plus another three days to get fully charged and be ready for the final test match. But as a result, it, I think it clouded the judgment of our, our management and he was forced to play and the results after that four-shot gear wheel really reflected someone who really was short of cricket, who tied very quickly. And even though he tried manfully to put in some good bowling efforts, you really could see that, you know, he was tired. He had no energy whatsoever. And that worked to the detriment of the team in the last two games. So you think in, in that second test, they should have tried one of uh, Kemar Holder or Raymond Reefer as a sort of replacement for him? Well, absolutely. I mean, I, I would have played Shamar Holder. He would have been bursting to go, give him the opportunity um, to play that test match. I mean, Shamar would have known in his mind that the likelihood is that Gabriel would come back for the third test match. So he would be really committed to put in a big effort in that second test match, um, knowing that even if he did well, he may still be on the sidelines. But he would have had the opportunity, you know, to play. And for me, Really, that was a huge mistake that West Indies made, one that in the end appeared dearly for. Well, that test was for England was dominated, well, there was a century by uh, Dominic Sibley, and also, of course, Ben Stokes, uh, he scored a 176. You, play, you played, um, played with and played against a lot with Ian Botham. How would you compare Ben Stokes with Ian Botham? I think they're both two fantastic cricketers. What both of them have is this great self-belief. Um, you know, as you know, both of them was very confident cricketer, whether with bat, ball, or fantastic slip fielder as well. Very competitive as well. Um, ben Stokes, I think, cut from very much the same cloth. Very competitive. Always makes something happens when you ask him to. You know, there were times where the game was going nowhere, even though injured England handed him the ball and he made something happen. Um, those are the traits that both him and Ian Botham possessed. And he really is a vital part of the the England lineup. But even more so, now that he's actually in a batting position, 
not necessarily on our wrongest position. He, he really became one of the main batters. And you saw in that second test match, you know, what he was able to do with the bat. And that was the difference really between those sides that he stood up and showed, you know, what a, what, what a fine player he is. So I think the other thing also you would have noticed that England rested bowlers in that second test match because, you know, they recognised that there's going to be a six test match series. They've got a battery of fast bowlers. While it is important to just try and win every test match, you also must look after the longevity of, of your bowlers by rotating them. And they're rested. Um, even, you know, Stuart Broad played, didn't play the first get test. Yeah, we all heard about that. But, uh, yeah. but, you know, he was obviously disappointed, came back in, but did what he had to do. But that second test match, the likes of Wood was, Wood was rested, Anderson was rested. You know, so England were rotating their bowlers, taking the full summer into consideration. I mean, the West Indies lost that test by 113 runs. When they went to the third test at Old Trafford, did you think they'd run out of run out of steam? They'd been in this biosecure bubble for quite a long period of time. And so they were bowled out then for two scores of less than 200. At that point, I think they ran out of steam and ran out of ideas because really that test match again, Leading up to that test match, I did a program for Sports Max. And my view was, I always figured they would bring Cornwall in for, the, for that final test match. But my view at that point was that really, a batsman should have been dropped. And at that point, I thought Shea Hope should have been the person to be dropped. Put the pressure on the five batsmen or the six batsmen. Let them know really that, you know, if five or six can't do it, seven or eight's not going to do it. And that has been proven all along put the pressure on the batsman. And, and more importantly, what I stated then, and this was many, many days before the test match, that if I won the toss, regardless, I would bat and put the pressure on the batsman. Now, West Indies made some fundamental errors, which really, I, I, I could not understand these errors. First of all, they included um, Cornwall, but at the expense of a fast bowler. So they dropped Joseph, which meant they were left with Gabriel, who was very, very tired after the, his efforts in the first two test matches. Gabriel, Holder, and Roach. That's the only fast bowling stock they had. One, one half injured and tired, and two others. And then you had Roach. Then you had the spin of Cornwall and Chase. Now, with that sort of team, you know, if you win the toss, you must bat. You have no choice but to bat. Because you, you have loaded your team with spinners, which means, you know, this, the best times for the spinners are the fourth and fifth day. So they won the toss, made a huge mistake, put England into bat. So now their spinner that they brought into the side is bowling on the first day of the test match. And as you know, the first two, three days of the test match, the pitch is at its best. Mm. And his figures reflected that. And really, for me, they made two huge errors in that final test match, um, along with the errors in the second test match, which really gifted you know, England a series. Even though England played well, uh, by that time, really, West Indies were there for the taking. I mean, two people we need to mention in the final test uh, who both reached landmarks. Uh, firstly, uh, Kemar Roach um, reached 200 test wickets, the first West Indian since Kirtley Ambrose. What can you tell us about Kemar? Because he's, uh, he's a Barbadian. Yes, I mean, Roach basically 
know, he, he he's he's very much the leader of the the pack in Barbados in terms of bowlers. Obviously, he's very experienced. Played a lot of Test cricket years ago. Obviously, much quicker because I think injuries have curtailed that sort of pace that he had before. But I think what he's learned over the years is to be a much more skilled practitioner of medium-fast bowling, uh, with the ability to occasionally bowl a quicker delivery. But what he has now is control, you know, swing, and and obviously the experience of having played at this level. So he's a much more better bowler now, and it was good to see him actually achieving that landmark of getting um, 200 wickets and in the process going ahead of some of the more illustrious fast bowlers that's played for West Indies. So, you know, Roach, at this moment, he probably will not be in the future um, the number one or two bowler, but I think as a third seamer, once he maintains his fitness and with the know-how that he's got right now, I think he could be an asset to West Indies going forward. And, and of course, in that test also, Stuart Broad reached uh, 500 test wickets, uh, another fantastic achievement. Yeah, absolutely fantastic. And when you bear in mind that he didn't play in the first test match and was contemplating retirement, really he came back out, showed his worth in that second test match, and then obviously the third test match um, made some vital breakthroughs and, as you said, achieved that milestone. So, you know, he really had something to prove and he, and he proved it right. And um, similar thing happened in the West Indies the last tour when England were here. Remember, Stuart Broad was dropped for the first Test match in Barbados, which West Indies won quite easily. And a repeat happened in England. He was dropped for the first Test match, but he came back in one of the. I think he came back in one of the Test matches. It might have been St Lucia, and bore exceptionally well. And then this series, similarly, brought back into the side and justified being brought back into the side by his performances. So your final reflections on the the series from from both teams' point of view? I think from both teams' point of view, for me, disappointing for the West Indies, the fact that we didn't bat very well, didn't score 100 in the series, the bowling, the, immediate, the fast bowling, I think tried to hold its own, ran out, of, ran out of steam. So for me, that was disappointing that, you know, they really performed below par. Uh, at times, the feeling wasn't great. Plus, I think the plus, I think, People like, um, I thought Blackwood was a plus, even though it was a question mark before the series. I thought he was a plus in the series. I thought um, at times, Austin Chase also was was a plus. And really, you know, when you look through the side, and Craig Graffitt to some degree also came back into the team after a couple of difficult years at the international level. So you cannot say there was a lot of plus for West Indies on the bowling side, obviously Jason Holler did reasonably well. Kimar Roach, after a, a poor start, he didn't get any wickets in, the, in that first one or two test matches, but I thought he came back in the end quite well. And obviously Shannon Gabriel, who showed a lot of courage, and you know, got those nine wickets in the first test match, but obviously only got a couple more after that. But I think his return to the side was a plus. From an England point of view, I think England really, I think Ben Stokes, you know, Sibley, um, the young boys, you know, held their, held their hands up throughout that series. As you know, England were playing three 22-year-olds most of the time, Pope, Crawley and, and Sibley. So, 
you know, that's a plus for them. That they've got some young players, very young players coming through who are showing good promise at this level. So that, that argues well for them in the future. And obviously the continued bowling of Broad and Anderson, even though um, Archer didn't have the best of series, they know that they've still got some firepower in their lineup. So I think overall, I thought it was an excellent series. I think it was fairly competitive. West Indies could have done better if they'd made um, some better decisions. But at the end of the day, I think probably the better team came out on top in the series. One person is a cricket fan that you probably know well that comes over very well both on the field and off the field is, is Jason Holder. What can you tell us about Jason? Yeah, I think Jason is a very um, level-headed man. He's, he's obviously had to operate both as an all-rounder and captain against the backdrop of people always questioning his ability, either as a batsman or a bowler or as a captain. He's always under that microscope. I think he's handled it pretty well. As a result, I think his overall game has improved. As you know, at one stage, he's very much number one all-rounder in the world cricket. So, you know, his batting is improving all the time. So on those two fronts, you know, he is certainly silenced um, a lot of his critics, a lot of those here in the Caribbean who still question his ability. Uh, as a captain, you know, he's got a fairly difficult job because he's in charge of a team that hasn't had a huge amount of success over the last three or four years, trying his best to hold it together. Um, still has things to learn as a captain. Uh, perhaps not as attacking as captain as, as he could be, but you know he may believe that with the with the players that he has, it doesn't afford him that ability to be an all-out attacking captain. So you know he's learning on the job. The question is going to be really, you know, how the rest of the team can rally. You know, if the rest of the team can rally and perform, I'm sure that he would become a much more confident captain and perhaps ready to take more risk. But, you know, I, I think, you know, he's still a young man, so, you know, he's got time on his hands. And I think to date, you know, all around, he's, he's done a reasonable job. Oh, thanks for that. One would hope, um, having seen the West Indies come over to England, that uh, we can return the favour ahead of any scheduled visit to the Caribbean, because clearly the ECB financially would have would have suffered immensely if the West Indies hadn't have come over. Yes, I mean, the West Indies certainly did a great favour to England, and I'm absolutely certain that that favour will not be forgotten because I think international cricket, that's what you need to do. You really need to look after each other. You know, West Indies could have easily said, you know, the situation in England with the COVID-19 situation, you know, we're not coming. But that was never the case. I don't think that was a discussion at all. It was just how we could make this happen. Obviously, once they were given the guarantees of what England would do in relation to safety, etc., there was no question about them going. So, you know, and having done that, you know, they got England out of a lot of trouble in terms of their, their various rights, contracts, etc. So, you know, England would have salvaged a great deal from this series and really the all great debt of gratitude um, to the West Indies. And I'm sure in time, in one way or another, uh, they will repay that gratitude. So I think it's, it, it, it has brought the two boards, I think, closer together. And I believe that, you know, in the future, it will be down to the benefit of West Indies. And especially at this time, 
I think it is, it is important for the smaller nations to have good relations with the big nations in light of the fact that at the moment with ICC and the distribution of revenue, it is very discriminating against the smaller nations in what they receive from ICC revenues. So it's important for these smaller nations when they get the opportunity to assist the big nations, who in turn can return the favour when they sit at ICC table about discussions in relation to a more equitable, equitable distribution of ICC funds. So I think what West Indies have done and what Pakistan have done, certainly England will assist them at some point in the future. So I think it's been a, a really good exercise and we need to get that sort of cooperation between boards um, more in the future. Oh, thank you. That's a very good point, because if not, England, uh, England, Australia and India, if they're not careful, are only going to be playing against themselves. So, uh, but thanks for discussing that particular series. If we could move on then to the Pakistan uh, part of the summer, uh, what were your impressions of their team before they arrived? Obviously, Pakistan is a fairly youngish team, um, had some difficulties with one or two players before they came. But for Pakistan, it was always going to be a difficult tour because Pakistan like is a similar team to the West Indies that seem to take quite a long time to warm up before you see their best performances. You know, even though West Indies was able to put on a good performance in the first test match, really history has shown that generally that type of performance usually comes at the end of the series and not the beginning. Pakistan is very similar to West Indies and they wouldn't have had a lot of cricket before they came to England. So it was always going to be difficult for them. The one thing that would have kept them in the game is... You know, their bowling attack. I think they have you know, the type of bowlers that Pakistan produced tend to bowl quite well in England. Um, they either swing the ball or move it off the seam. So the only thing really that they would have had difficulty with was the amount of matches they were able to play. So I always believe that they were going to be under pressure, certainly for the first couple of test matches, maybe the third test match, they would get, give a better performance. So their task was always going to be a very difficult one particularly when England would also have already played three test matches before that. So True. Yeah. They, they were fit. They had their combinations all worked out. They had rested people. So they were match ready, very much so. Well, England would have been used to the biosecure bubble as well by then. But actually in the first test, Pakistan, after the first innings, uh, led England by 107. But it all went wrong for them in their second innings when they got bowled out for 169 uh, when at one stage there were 101 for four what did you think went wrong in their second innings well again you know you know pakistan as i said or a side that can give you one very good performance and then they can follow that up with an equally bad performance and that really has been the history of their cricket uh, their batting obviously they've got a couple of world-class players in azar ali and um, Baba Azam. But I think the rest of the batting really, while capable, still very much untested in English conditions. So there was always the possibility that in an innings that they would get bowled out throughout the series quite cheaply. For, unfortunately for them, it happened at a crucial time when they were actually in front of the game, having led England on first innings um, by a sizable amount. Really, they were very much in the driver's seat. And, you know, had they batted a little bit better, 
I think England would have been hard pressed to to win the Test match. But saying that, you know, I think England had a fantastic bowling performance in the second innings, which still left them with a very difficult target to get because 270 odd on the last innings is not easy. And as you know, England found themselves um, in dire trouble. And then really that partnership between Walks and Butler, and really Butler was, was under pressure certainly with his batting and keeping throughout the series. So he he came good at that point with walks and really dragged England over the line from a position where Pakistan was very much in control of the game. So I think Pakistan made some mistakes, certainly during that innings. They allowed walks to bat too freely for quite a long time when, you know, you've got the likes of Shane Afridi, you know, who's not slow, and Nassim Shah, who's pretty quick, uh, really, you know, they should have made it uncomfortable for walks. Um, you didn't see that. You didn't see a barrage of short balls, short legs, etc. So they made some tactical errors in, in, in that innings. But all credit to England. You've got to give those two batsmen, you know, credit because, you know, they batted really well. And from that moment, really, I think Pakistan were, they were under pressure for the rest of the series. Yeah, well, they said that partnership they added 139 folks and Butler, and I, and I think again you must have been reading my cards because there was quite a few um, criticisms in our sort of national papers about um, Azat Ali's captaincy, and one of the things I'd got written down here was uh, why didn't they bounce Wokes, which is when he first came in, which was reported a lot on the television. Yes, I mean you're right. I mean the question I'm sure Azat Ali. Once the game finished and reflected, he would have been asking himself the same question because uh, maybe maybe they underestimated the ability of walks with a bat and thought that just normal bowling would be enough to get him out. Uh, also that, you know, Butler was not in very good form, so they probably felt they could get him out at any time as well. And it proved really to the detriment of themselves because without being totally ruthless, um, they allowed the test match to get away. I don't believe an Australian side in that position would have made the same mistake. I think there would have been a certain ruthlessness um, in their approach um, to walks, and I think they would have got the result. They would have got the desired result. But you know, as Ali is, I think he's he's a bit like Jason Holder. I think he's a conservative sort of captain. He's not someone that's going to go all out attack and set aggressive fields. He's more a wait-and-see sort of captain. And, you know, it, it worked against him. But, you know, I said credit to the two players, one who was very much out of form and one who we know could bat, but people probably didn't think could bat that well, produced two very fine innings to win a test match. Well, the second test, as, as we know, was ruined by bad light, rain, and only 100, just over 130 overs were bowled in the whole test match. So there's very little to say about that game. But moving on to the third test, on a very good batting wicket at Southampton, England scored a, a massive score, 583, with uh, 22-year-old Zach Crawley scoring 267. What do you think of, of him as a batsman? Well, I think first and foremost, uh, what I would like to say... I think Pakistan won the toss there, didn't they? And, and put England to bat. Again, you know, a huge mistake. A lot of these sides don't like batting, but 
I think Crawley's innings was exceptional. You know, he's 22 years of age. Really showed a lot of composure, patience, and really not out of place at, at, at Test match level. So I think his innings was, you know, it was a fantastic innings. It really set up England for that big total. And then also the return to form of Butler, who had shown glimpses, as we said before. He came back into form really there with that partnership. And I think England, that big first innings total, once they've got that first innings total, really, you know, Pakistan were never really in with a shout of winning the game, even if no time was lost in the game. They were always going to be behind the eight ball. So tremendous batting there by, by those two. Yeah, they, the Pakistan, just watching on the TV, they, they did seem to struggle. I mean, you know what it's like yourself when you're fielding with a big score, but perhaps it was also the end of a tour. They'd been in this bubble for a long period of time. It, it must be harder in those sort of circumstances as well. Yeah, very hard. And I think perhaps what would have helped, what would not have helped Pakistan is that also these, the turnaround period in these test matches are so, so short. So this is something that these players never have been, they haven't been used to that. You know, as you know, you play a test match and then you normally have a couple of games in between and then the test comes again. So suddenly you find that the you know game is finishing on Monday and by the end of the week, the next test match is starting. So this was a new situation for them, even though a lot of time was lost through rain. But, you know, even though rain was falling and, and the teams were not playing, you, you know, you still use up a lot of nervous energy because you're actually in a test game. Um, there was still have been practicing indoors, etc. So that would have worked against them. The fact that games were coming thick and fast and um, something that they were not used to. And obviously by that time, you know, I think England would have been very comfortable and easy with the situation, having gone through it with West Indies before. They knew exactly what to expect in relation to the, the time period in between games. So, you know, Pakistan, you know, they'll learn from that. Um, I would imagine for the next while, you know, cricket's going to have to be played in similar circumstances. So this would be, you know, a good experience for them. The likes of South Africa, Australia, Sri Lanka, etc., hasn't played in these circumstances yet. So it would be a new experience for them and they'll have to get used to it. But at least Pakistan will be able, and West Indies, will be able to use these experiences um, going forward. We did see a return to form by their skipper, Azhar Ali, who made a, an impressive 141 not out. And also Mohamed Rizwan, again, uh, got another half century. Yes, I mean, Azhar Ali, we know, is um, you know, a fantastic player. There's no, you know, he's one of the finest players that, that Pakistan has. Uh, with Babar Azam, who probably was not at his best, but still gave glimpses of the quality. So those, they have, they've got two quality players there and Azar's innings in that test match, the third test match, really was a standout innings. You know, he batted all the way through and really looked because, you know, the bowling was very challenging. So, you know, he played a fantastic knock. For me, Rizvan really was the fine of the tour because I thought he was outstanding behind the, the stumps. Certainly, the, you know, he's been by far the best keeper in the entire series. Not just the series, but the entire sum of cricket. You know, he, he was fantastic behind the stumps, uh, standing back, standing up. And one good thing I saw, which you don't really see these days, is that people who are above medium fast, the keepers always stand back. But Rizwan, helmet on, and he stood up to the likes of Abbas 
and you know when the ball was turning sharply and, and bouncing you know he, he was equal to the task and not forgetting the innings couple of innings he played with the bat you know he so he looks a very very good cricketer and you know for me he as speaking keeper he had an outstanding series no question about that so that argues well for, for Pakistan in terms of their bowling Abbas you know, tidy, perhaps just not quick enough in England. You know, he bowled pretty well. Uh, Shane Afridi, again, you know, he, he had a fairly good side. And I think, obviously, Nazim Shah is, what, 16, 17, young man. So, you know, he, he has a bright future. The Yasir Shah really, you know, is obviously not at his best at the moment. He's He's been around for a long time, so they'll have to find a, a good replacement for him. But I think Pakistan's side needs... They need to find a good all-rounder. They need to find a Ben Stokes or an Imran Khan or someone of that note who can bowl and bat in the middle order um, for them to be a strong side. But I think they would have learnt from this series and um, they provided good competition for England. But that test match um, uh, was all about Jimmy Anderson and his race for the 600 test match wickets, uh, which he achieved on that final day when he got Hazar Ali out. But... Uh, what do you think of, of his achievement of getting 600 test wickets? Yeah, what can you say about Jimmy Anderson? I mean, to be still bowling fast at age 38 with the consistency and taking wickets as often as he does really is remarkable. Um, I was going to say he was, st- he was nearly playing when you were still playing, but not quite that long yeah, ago. But, uh, but you know, you know he, he, he really has been a remarkable bowler for England, particularly in England. I think in England, he has really been the outstanding bowler in those conditions. While he may have lost a bit of pace now, there's no question that his control and movement is still there. So he will still travel um, top order and low order batsman in England. What he will be like overseas, we've noticed in the last couple of years that his performances have not has been going down playing overseas because obviously I think the lack of pace, particularly in places like Australia, New Zealand and the Caribbean will work against him where pitches are quicker and really you need it, the more quicker bowlers to be to be impactful. But I think in England, even at his age, when there's a team being picked in England, his name has to be part and parcel of that. As long as he's fit, you know, he, he has a role to play. And really the achievement of getting 600 wickets as a fast bowler is just quite unbelievable because... Wireless spinner, as you know, like Warren and Murlithran, who don't have the same sort of pressure put on their body, um, can get over 600 wickets. For a fast bowler to get it, it really calls for not just a high degree of skill, but a tremendous amount of longevity and, and fitness. And um, he has exhibited that, Anderson, over his 38 years. Uh, still looks, and, and when you listen to him, he still very much wants to play. So it appears he still has the hunger and desire to continue playing. So, you know, I take my hat off to him, really a tremendous achievement. I mean, that is England's sort of dilemma, really. We are, we're very good at, um, in home tests, but it will be harder for us to get 20 wickets when we go to places like um, India and Australia. Yes, it will be. But I think, you know, if, if they maintain the, you know, the pace bowlers that they have in the likes of, Archer would, and if you can get a fit Ben Stokes and and a Stuart Broad, you know, really overseas that gives you a real chance because 
you've got some real firepower. You've got Broad who can be aggressive, but he can also be, be very um, tight. And you know, and once Stokes is fit and can bowl, you know, you have a person there who can change the game with the ball as well. So, you know, that gives you an opportunity. I think the bigger challenge for England is, you know, is finding a top-class spinner. I think that's the one part of the game right now that you can see them struggling. You know, best. Uh, he, you know, he may be promising, but he's, you know, he's not the best. He, he's, you know, he, he, he is another spinner. He's not a, he's not a Nathan Lyon. He's not a Graham Swan. You know, England need to find someone of that ilk. I think if if they can do that, and the young batters, and the likes of, you know, Sidley, Pope, and, and Crawley, if, if they can continue to improve, you know, now you see the basis of a of a very strong side, but without a quality spinner, particularly overseas, you know, that will be the black mark against the team. And um, as for uh, wicketkeeper, I mean, Butler had a very successful summer as a batsman. His wicketkeeping, a lot of people have talked about whether Ben Folks should be selected when we play in places like Sri Lanka and India. What's your, your feelings on that? Well, I think Butler's performance in this last test match suggests that somewhere or the other he's got to get into the 11. So it's going to be a question of whether you play him as a batsman um, or keep a batsman. If you bring if you bring in folks, you know who drops out of the team. So I think what Butler really needs to do is just really work harder on his game, just to improve his keeping, uh, because you know he's going to be a fixture um, for a while because you know he has that ability, you know, to bat and bat well and take games away from people. Obviously, he didn't have the best summer with the gloves. Well, he didn't have a great summer with the gloves actually, but. There's a lot of hard work to be done there, but you know at the same time, you know he he I think he's very much of England's future. The will Fox have the same impact with the bat as as Butler. I mean I know Fox has done well in the Test matches he's played overseas, so he could you know he'll probably make the touring party, but I think Butler probably will start off. I think this period now before the next time England play is when Butler really needs to get the work done with. The quality we keep in coach and you know work on him because his batting his batting will always give him an opportunity. So folks may have to wait a little while to actually replace Butler in the side, but it's good to have a it's good to have a replacement. I think Butler would also know that he needs to up his game when it comes to keeping. Well, thank you very much for reviewing the two test series. It's been a, an absorbing summer, um, especially in view of the, the circumstances the players have played in. Uh, I know watching some of the Premier League football, they've not always been quite as good, or certainly when they started it wasn't, but the cricket, even from the beginning, was played at a very high standard. So thank you very much for joining me in the pavilion and I hope to speak to you again soon. Stephen, it's always a great pleasure and I thoroughly enjoyed this summer of cricket. I think some excellent performances Obviously, the world starved of international cricket, so we were all, you know, looking forward to it. I guess we all were wondering how things would work out, having played, having to play cricket without fans and in the biosecure environments. Certainly, from a viewing point of view, um, I don't think any thing changed. You know, you 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 got the same enjoyment uh, from the game. Um, obviously, for the players, 
they would much prefer to have spectators. I think Zach Crawley would have preferred to have a full house who would have applauded him from the time he got out all the way to the pavilion for that masterful innings. But saying that, it is what it is. This is the environment we're in right now and we have to make the most of it. But from my point of view, I certainly enjoyed watching it on TV and you know, I look forward to whenever the next test series is. So it's been a pleasure reviewing this with you, Stephen, and um, look forward to certainly doing some more with you in the future. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to The Paddock and the Pavilion. You can download the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Pad and Pad. Sports Social Podcast Network.